Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today is senior editor Matt Kenny. Hey, Ed. And that's it. Pekovich is shooting a video series of some sort, Asa is God knows where, and Tom, master of the ship, is down in Colonial Williamsburg, attending Working Wood in the 18th century. Uh, anyhow, uh, as always, I like to tell folks to spread the word about this podcast to your fellow woodworkers. Stop by our iTunes page and maybe leave a nice comment and a sweet five-star rating. You can even go to our iHeartRadio page uh, over at iHeart.com. Just look up Shop Talk Live um, and uh, leave a comment there if you so desire. Uh, so now on to bigger and better things, Matt. Uh, yes. You were just in the land of uh, buckle eight- shoes and big hats. That's right. <laughs> the Verily. Eight- the 18th century. My lady. Yes. <laughs> don't, don't call me my, my lady. I was down at the uh, Working Wood in the 18th Century Conference at uh, Colonial Williamsburg. It's something we sponsor every year. I believe this year was the 16th edition of the conference. Okay. Uh, so the, the conference can drive now. Yes, can drive, <laughs> yes. Uh, and in some countries it can drink. Um, hmm. it, uh, not an endorsement. No, not an endorsement. Uh yeah, it's something that we co-sponsor every year, and obviously it's about how furniture was made during the colonial period. They stray a little bit uh, later than that at times. Like this year, uh, Steve Lott is there, and he did talk some about uh, some federal-style sideboards that were made. But uh, basically the idea behind the conference every year is this. It's the it's the guys that work in the hay shop, the hay uh, cabinet maker shop in Williamsburg, uh, who are uh, experts at hand tool only furniture making because that's all they had in the 18th century. Uh, and then they usually invite one or two outside woodworkers in to also demonstrate. This year it's Steve Lada. In the past it's been Phil Lowe. Uh, Dan Faya was there one year. Uh, all kinds of great furniture makers. And Everyone meets in this big auditorium, and down on the stage, uh, you have woodworkers demonstrating woodworking as they're talking to you and explaining to you what's happening. There's and a th- they project it on a screen or they, something? They do project it up onto a big screen so you can see very clearly what's happening. And you can take qu- they take questions. It's sort of a rolling, informal format. Um, it's only one presentation at a time, so you don't have to pick and choose. Uh, this year, they're talking about uh, furniture for the dining room, and uh, the the master cabinet maker there, who is now uh, uh, Corey Loftime. It used to be Mac Headley, but he retired this past year. So Corey and the journeyman, uh, whose name is Bill, they are making this really beautiful, intricately, intricately. There you go, <laughs> carved. Uh, I had a little too much root beer at lunch. <laughs> um, carved table with a with a granite top it was an amazing table and then uh steve lotta was talking about federal style sideboards and it was really cool it's a fantastic thing. i don't i do not make period furniture but i will tell you this every year i've been there it's my fourth year i've learned something that i can use elsewhere in my furniture making sure a lot of yeah. those techniques are universal yeah the it's a um fantastic conference so the hay shop uh, yes. at colonial williamsburg is really cool it's um I was there when I was a kid. I have not been there as an adult, um, but I know it's a it's a it's not a huge shop. It's no. a colonial structure. It's the original structure, I guess, right? I'm not sure if it's the original hay shop, but uh, or at it, least it's period accurate. It, yeah, yeah, just like everything is in. There's no lights, so they only work by daylight through the Correct. windows. Yep, um, and it's incredibly romantic looking. I was I was browsing their website uh, before the show. Um, it's one of those things that I hope. Yeah. Some year to convince Tom that you need a blogger to go along with you. Well, the first year <laughs> that I went there to represent the magazine, I went and took a lot of photos at the Hay Shop and wrote a blog about it. Yep. So that's on our website, and you can see photos of the Hay Shop. It's a really cool setup, and everyone – yeah, obviously the guys that work there, uh, they dress in period-accurate clothing. They use period-accurate tools, uh, and they build with period-accurate uh, techniques. It's the real deal. It's the real deal for 18th century woodworking, yeah. I often wondered if I could, because it, it sounds it sounds to a certain extent kind of like a dream job, um, yet 
I don't know about the period clothing. I think that would be a deal breaker for me. I <laughs> probably. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a little. It's you know, but I mean, come on, the stockings and the well, they don't shoes actually. And... They don't all dress that way because they actually some of the guys evidently back then had long pants. Really? Yeah. So some of the uh, guys in the hay shop wear long pants. Oh, all right. I could do that. But the pants, they kind of they didn't. They weren't like fit to your body like pants are today right. so on the back there's always like this big baggy butt yeah because they have to cinch it up and then there's parachute like, pants yeah it's ridiculous <laughs> yeah but anyways some some of the guys do wear the the breeches and puffy shirts and the buckle shoes and whatnot so about this um this table you were talking about with the granite top Yes. Uh, what? That was a dining table? I saw a photograph of it. It wasn't passing, a dining but... table. It was like a sideboard table. Okay, I got it. Uh, it had a granite top, and then the legs were originally uh, you know, billets of wood, solid billets of wood. Mm-hmm. And they cut uh, after beneath the aprons. They cut out the, the, the meat of the wood, so the legs actually look L-shaped. Mm-hmm. And then on each leg of the L— Doesn't that give you short grain somewhere? No. If it's an L-shaped? No, it's L-shaped like um, there's a front and a oh, side. Oh, I understand. I understand. Yeah, there's a front and a side. Okay, I got it. And uh, the front and the side are both have these pierced carvings. So it's this really beautiful leg. But they also, they, they were sort of copying to this and sort of joking about it that the, the guy who designed this tale, his name was Buckland. The man who made it or executed the carvings was named Sears. It's called the Buckland and Sears table. But uh, evidently there was... Wherever he got some of the uh, – there was – I think it came from Chippendale. In Chippendale, in his book, uh, the, the Gentleman's – whatever that book is. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, but he said, you know, if you're going to make pierced legs, you can't put a lot of weight on it. Mm-hmm. And Buckland just basically ignored that, that advice. Incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was correct oh, because okay. the, the, they, the curators were saying, you know, within – probably within 10 years or something, they were having to reinforce this table. Oh. Because it couldn't – so if you look underneath it, there's a lot of add-ons. Well, there were some there were some bracing up around, or some some almost like glue blocks added up around the mortise and tenons. Okay, and then they had to go back and put solid wood behind the piercings so that the legs could withstand the weight. And but one thing that was interesting about this was that they pointed out, and this is correct, that some of the furniture that survived from that long ago. And this is a very old table. Uh, didn't survive because it was well made. Mm-hmm. It survived because it was beautiful. And so it and, was very well cared for. And so people people went out of their way to ensure that it did survive. Yeah. You know? It, it's interesting because I, I think that when most people think of period furniture, they automatically think like this stuff was built, you know, at the hands of incredible technicians. Well, see, and, Steve, and, Steve Lotta talked about yeah. this and he pointed out that's absolutely false. That some of it was Hogwash. made very yeah. poorly. Right. Uh, but it survived because it was beautiful. He, he was looking at two peri- uh, federal period sideboards. And he had photographs of the interior construction, and he said, you know, look, on the outside, look at this veneer work. It's amazing, amazing veneer work. But look at the inside. The construction methods are questionable at best. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he actually, for these two-period sideboards, he made full-size mock-ups of them, but there was only half of it, so from like the yeah. center line over. And inside it. he had them disassembled, and right there on stage, he assembled each one to show us how they went together, what type of joinery was used. And he pointed out, you know, with this one, here's this. This is why this one had to have these extra braces on it, and it's not a very good construction method. But this other one has a great construction method. It's the one that I, you know, he uses that construction method still. It reminds me of a. Um, I worked on an audio slideshow. I don't know, like a year ago, with uh, Mark Schofield when he was still here, and so maybe more than a year, but. Um, and it, 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 it was about period furniture, and one of the things that came up was how to tell a New York uh, card table uh, from the late 18th century. And the way you can tell that it was a New York card table is the big crack down the center <laughs> of the top because the, for some reason the way that these, this certain style of card table was constructed uh, in New York in the late 1700s was such that they, the way they attached these breadboard ends, yeah. it, it didn't allow for expansion and contraction. It restricted the tops expansion and contraction mm-hmm. ability thus causing this huge crack and it was interesting this curator um i can't remember which auction house this was but this curator had shown mark 
you know, just table after table, New York cracked. card tables, every single one was cracked. Yeah. And it's stuff that you would, and when we looked at the construction, the way it was constructed, I can't remember exactly what was the flaw, but I remember looking at Mark thinking like, you know, any bonehead with a modicum of ability nowadays would know not to do it that way. Yeah, I guess. Um, but still, a lot of people have wood movement problems, <laughs> you know? No, I know that. And but, so do I, case in point. Yeah. I, I just cracked a whole dovetailed cabinet, you know, because I was <laughs> too stupid to give enough expansion. But, uh, but. If, if people want – listeners want to see a sideboard of the type that uh, yeah. Steve Lott is talking about, he did a two-part article for us where he made his version of these uh, mm-hmm. sideboards using the better construction techniques. He did point out the way the, a lot of the tops were made back then. They were not solid wood, but there would be a frame on the bottom, and then there would be edging around it, and then like a 5 inch thick solid wood top put down over that. And a lot of those cracked right. too because the, the frame would constrain the movement of the, of the, of the 5 eighths inch thick top. So It's interesting. That's one of the things that always um – when I when I dream about the idea of just you know, it, boy, wouldn't it be nice to just build furniture full time? I got to admit that I would be. Um, I have a self confidence issue. I'll admit that, but I have to admit that I would be terrified of building you know expensive furniture for people and and yeah. screwing something up and having something crack within a year and, and like right. oh I thought I had enough room there and and I just I get terrified of that. Well, uh, I made a dining table and delivered it last spring, and the uh, people emailed me. Recently, uh, it's two giant slabs of walnut. That I are, remember, yeah, yeah, and they're not connected to each other. They're not glued to each other. They're not really their, their movement's not constrained at all. But it's been so dry in Connecticut mm-hmm. that uh, a tiny little check opened up on the end grain. Okay, now I know, and you know, and Mike knows. We all know that this is not a big deal. This is what happens to wood, especially giant yeah. slabs. But to the client, it's a big deal. Sure. So I'm gonna have to go out and fix that now how do you plan that's a good question how do you plan to fix it well disguise my, it or my hope is is that when humidity levels come back up mm-hmm. in the spring it's going to close in it'll again. close up and once it closes up butterfly hmm. and then that should hold it closed uncle george to the rescue that's right <laughs> right on okay well uh well let's let's move into some questions um, all right the first one comes from tom and tom actually has two questions so here goes the first two. one is I hear and read that planes and chisels work really well if they're truly sharp, but how do I know if my cutting tool is truly sharp? I've tried several methods to determine how sharp a tool is, from shaving my arm and cutting paper to catching the blade on a thumbnail, but I've found that the blade often does not cut as well as a, quote, hot knife through butter, end quote. So let's let's tackle that one. How do, how do you tell when you're truly sharp? Well... I know there's all these sort of uh, old furniture makers myths about how to test end grain shaving. End grain shaving does work really well. I would use a softwood though, mm-hmm. because softwood is more likely to break out. And if but if you're sharp, you'll cut it very cleanly. So exp- explain that. There's a difference between like getting dust, yes. or peeling away a slice of end grain. Yeah, what you want is that when you cut across that pine end grain, you want a nice thin shaving uh, that and there's no tear out left behind on the piece of wood that thing should look like glass almost um, th- so that that's the, really the best way to tell if you're sharp is to use the tool hmm. and see what it does does it take is it easy to use because it should be very easy to cut with um, does it leave a clean surface behind it and um, that's it Easy to, and by easy to use, I mean how much force does it take to push the tool? It shouldn't take very much at all, not with a sharp tool. Um, the other thing you can do, of all these sort of old wives' tales ways of detesting if it's sharp, probably the one that to me makes the most sense is uh, arm hair or hand hair, depending on how hairy you are, I guess. Uh, you looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, because... Uh, they're not – those arm hairs are like – they're not supported by anything. They're just sort of free. Yeah. And if you can cut that with a blade, that means it's sharp. Okay. You know? But uh, the biggest test is to actually use it. You know? All right. Um, well, uh, his second question is this. I have a Stanley Bailey 35 jack plane, and I'm finding it – now, that's key, and we'll find out why in a minute – I have to turn the adjustment screw to the maximum depth, and even then, 
Maybe it'll work, maybe not. I try to keep the chip breaker about a 32nd of an inch to a 16th from the edge of my hock blade. I flatten the sole, smoothed out the frog, cleaned the plane, and sharpened the blade using a guide, but I'm still having trouble getting a consistent thin shaving. What do I need to do to correct this problem? So, Stanley Bailey, 35, Jack. What's the deal? Well, the best thing I can think of is probably, and the, the, the key thing here is he says that he puts the blade in and he has to set it to where it's the, the, all the way down right. to, in order to get any type of cut at all. And I think it was going to the Stanley 35, unless I'm completely off my rock. No, you were right. I looked it up. Yeah, I, yeah, is a what's called a transitional plane. So it has a wooden body but a metal frog, and the metal frog is attached to the wooden body. So what I'm thinking here, I don't know this for certain. He should call. I, a quick call to Ron Hawk would certainly answer this question. I'm thinking that the uh, transitional body, the distance from the sole to the uh, the little thing that comes up to hold the blade when, so right. you can adjust the height, the, right. the depth of cut, that's di- greater than it would be on a metal Bailey plane, Stanley Bailey plane. So it's never going to— There's gonna, a different dynamic, an iron dynamic here. Yeah, there's just different dimensions involved. So this plane blade, the Hawk blade, is not going to work with this body right. because it's not long enough. Right. And that's probably the same the case with any secondhand or aftermarket Plane blade. There's just not. There's not going to be enough distance from the bevel to the little slot where the adjuster goes. Right, because all these aftermarket plane irons now are really designed for Stanley conventional Baileys yeah, and, and or bedrocks or right. you know metal bodied. That's correct. Planes. Yeah. So I think the, the Ron Hawk I know though will make you a plane blade to order. Hmm. So it's if, oh, interesting. So yeah. uh, if it does the right price. I don't think it's too – Kelly Dutton had this done. Uh, well, he's one of our art editors, and I don't think it was unreasonable. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I would for, – but for this guy uh, whose name – Tom, I, I would say to call Ron Hawk, tell him what plane you're using, describe the problem, and I would say that th- that's probably what the problem is. When were – do you know um, – when, when were these transitional planes manufactured about? What oh, era are we talking about? Do you oh have any goodness. idea? Well, they're before all metal planes, I believe. It's got to be so, mid-19th century? Uh, or late 19th century. It just seems like such an odd – like, why would you introduce wood into the into the equation? I mean, it just it, it well, seems it, odd to me. I, I don't know, and so I probably yeah. shouldn't surmise, but I would guess that it had something to do with casting technology, you know, the casting mm. technology that – it, it it's to cast a plane b- body is not an easy thing to do hmm. you know it, it takes uh because there's you know to cast it have it come out smooth and clean and all that kind of stuff it's not easy so maybe hmm. the technology Who wasn't knows? there i don't know all right if one of our listeners knows they can certainly email us and we'll oh share i'm that. sure they will <laughs> they're very they're very vocal whenever i make a flub uh so the next question comes from george and george wrote Arg! I'm confused about bandsaw blade tension, and your magazine isn't helping any. I'm being a bit facetious. I love the magazine and the podcast, but the advice in these two articles is at odds. Uh, by the way, I've also read Ace's excellent article. So, um, I'm at my wit's end trying to get a clean resaw cut on my 14-inch Rockwell bandsaw. Actually, boards up to 3 inches wide are no problem. It's the wider boards that are the problem. I've followed advice about a new blade. Drift compensation, guide setting, yada, yada. Most of that advice seems pretty consistent. So what's the deal with blade tension? Can you give me any tips how to set the tension and tell me how those two articles can both be right? So what he's talking about is an article from 2004 by Michael Fortune, Five Tips for Better Bandsawing, and then another article, uh, Setting Bandsaw Blade Tension, which I think you said was uh, Lonnie Lonnie Bird. Bird? Lonnie Bird. So I, I wanted to put my own two cents in, and then I'll let you then you can expand upon this because I right. I have this same saw uh, yep. that he has, which is the one that I bought from you, which you had bought from Mike Pekovich. Yeah. Um, my understanding has always been that, you know, 20 years ago or so, everybody was really big into, like, ratcheting down the tension on a bandsaw blade and getting it stiff as a board to get your best resaw and avoid drift, right? Um, Michael Fortune's technique is a bit different, um, and I'll let you cover that but all i want to say is that 
the the wisdom nowadays is that people have made too big a deal over you know tension and and adjusting for drift and all this because they're not properly setting up their bandsaws. I followed uh, or I produced a video with Asa on Michael Fortune's technique called "How to Change a Bandsaw Blade," and it goes through everything. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because when I bought your saw, Matt, I um, I actually used what I learned from that video, uh, which basically was coming from Michael Fortune to set up the saw I bought from you. It took me about 20 minutes and the thing purrs like a kitten. And I've resawn boards, I'd say, I don't know, a little bit wider than what he's talking. Oh, definitely over three inches on that saw and it's been fine. Um, so I haven't had any big drift problems or anything like that. So I'm going to leave it to you now. What's the deal with this inconsistency between bird and fortune? Well, it's a lot Setting up a bandsaw, like a lot of things in woodworking, can be done more than one way and get good results. That's there is no inconsistency here. It's not that they're, it's not that it's impossible for them to both be right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's certainly possible. There's more than one way to do. It. It's just like there's more than one way to sharpen a hand plane blade, yeah, and get it sharp. Uh, so there's more than one way to set up a, a bandsaw. I would say about the Lonnie Bird article, the one that was stretching, uh, stressing high tension. He seemed to be really pushing this idea that you needed this uh, very expensive gauge to test the uh, tension on the blade. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm with uh, you, uh, and a lot of other people still think this way, that you need to have high tension on the blade. Uh, but I, can, I know from personal experience that's not true. Uh, I also have set up bandsaws. Uh, according to the way that Michael Fortune does. Which is, and I should say with regards to tension. Is lower tension. Right, and you, it should be able to, if you take your index finger and you push on the side of that blade just until, you know, the tip of your finger turns totally white because the blood is, you know, pushed out, it should flex about a quarter inch. Now see, okay, so here's what actually Boom. gets even more to the issue yeah. uh, between Lonnie Bird and, and Michael Fortune's mm -hmm. recommendations. So Lonnie Bird, in that article, this other article that the that uh, George talks about, he says, okay, look, you know, ideally you have this $300 gauge. And he says, but I know that's really expensive. So if you don't have that, you could do it this way. And the technique he describes is exactly what you just said. Okay. And he says that, in fact, most of the time you don't need the blade at a super high tension, that something slightly less will work. And I think – there actually is no disagreement between them mm. that really what Lonnie Bird is saying is that, you know, super high tension is great, but the actual right tension is about like this. He describes that exact same finger test. Yeah. And Michael Fortune recommends that exact same finger test. So I bet they're at the same tension when they're done. The other, are very close. And the other thing that Michael talks about is um, the idea of, you know, you need a sharp blade on your machine. A lot of people keep using blades once they're past their prime. Yeah, a sharp, super sharp blade. You need a sharp blade. That solves probably 90% of the problems with a bandsaw. And three, uh, at least what Michael likes to use, is three teeth per inch. That's another thing that is beneficial. And the reason why, especially with resawing, is, is that the fewer teeth there are, the better it's going to be able to clear out the dust that's being created. The gullets aren't going to get clogged up. Correct. And, if the, and what causes one of the things that causes a bandsaw blade to barrel in a, in a resaw cut, is clogged gullets. So if you are able to keep the gullets clean, you're going to get a straighter cut. That, and I would imagine, like, what about um, having to push an absurd amount, apply an absurd amount of pressure with a dull blade? I would imagine that's got to cause some that flexing could, and that barreling. That could cause, sure. Yeah, but you want a sharp blade that's 3 to 4 TPI. I like skip tooth mm -hmm. uh, because they don't make as much noise, but it doesn't have to be. And the other thing that Michael stresses is that the blades don't need to be expensive. He uses right. blades that cost like $10 a blade. They're stare at bandsaw stock that gets cut, you know, put in, made into blades. Um, mm. And he just has a lot of them on hand and he goes through right. them. Yeah. So keep it sharp. Uh, I, I would say you can under tension. Do the quarter inch test like you described. So look up, uh, George. Uh, there's a video that I produced with Asa uh, called How to Change a Bandsaw Blade. That's all you have to enter in the search terms on finewoodworking.com. I'll post it in the blog for this uh, episode too. Um, but it worked for me and I've got the same saw you have. So um, anyhow. And, and could, we could probably also reference or post a link, even though it's behind the paywall to Fortune's article. Oh, absolutely. In fact, yeah. I'll, uh, let me write that down. Fortune? I'm actually writing this down as we speak. Okay. Because that has really good, that has good tips just on 
Because the other thing he says, he has problems resawing stuff over three inches wide. Now, he didn't say specifically what the problem was. Right. So I don't think I can diagnose the, the problem. But uh, it's probably going to be resolved by setting up the bandsaw the way Fortune does. And, and, it's, and that article covers not just blade tension, but other things as well. So, All right. Um, so next question comes from Lewis, and uh, he writes, A few months ago, I purchased some cherry and ash. A few days ago, I noticed little holes in the ash along with fresh sawdust. The first thing that came to mind was the emerald ash borer. So, is my ash done for? What can I do? Is there a chemical I can use to kill the bugs? I've also noticed the same holes on the cherry. Thanks for your help. Um, yeah. Well, let's... Uh, <laughs> I, I collected a few choice ideas, but let me, let, let's get... What's your take? First of all... If it's in your basement or in your garage, <laughs> get it out. Get it out. <laughs> uh, if there's an active infestation, you c- should not have it in your house. Put it in the yard. You know, uh, put some cement blocks down. Get it up off the ground. Put it in the yard uh, and cover it up with a piece of plywood or a piece of tin metal or something to keep the rain off the top of it. And you can not let it. Can, this stuff's got to be air dried. First of all, I know that because it wouldn't have bugs if it was kiln dried. They'd be dead. Right, because they would have been in a kiln. Right. So one thing, yeah. heat kills these bugs. And one way that you can very quickly kill them in most homes with heat is a fireplace or a wood stove. <laughs> and that might be where this stuff needs to go. I, you can't, it's hard to tell without seeing how bad the infestation is. But uh, So if you could kiln dry it, that would kill the bugs. So for these two boards, what you could do is... Um, cover the interior of your garage with some foil-backed rigid foam insulation and then install a blower. <laughs> right, and superheat it. But also, I believe, I, I, I'm not positive about this. I meant to check it, but I didn't have time because uh, I was eating lunch at the delicious Sycamore Drive-In in Bethel, Connecticut. Not a sponsor. Not a sponsor. Uh, but um, even when it gets when it gets dried out uh, to like 10 or 12% or lower – the ash borer's not going to want to be there anymore. They like green wood. Mm-hmm. So as it dries out, they're going to leave. Which So you could try just to air dry it for a year, year and a half, and keep a tr- keep eyes f- out for the little piles of sawdust, little pyramid-shaped piles of sawdust, uh, to see if they uh, are still there after it dries. There are commercially available uh, products that you spray onto mm-hmm. the wood, and usually if you do a Google search for uh, powder post beetles, mm-hmm. you'll find these products. I think most of them have some like the word borax or bor- or um, uh, borates oh, okay. or something right. like that in the title. Or tim- oh, anyways, I, but search for powder post beetles. You'll find the, the spray on stuff. Well, you could do that. Matt, I'm a man of action. You are a man of action. If it were me, I'd sticker this stuff, go over and get some I don't know, five mil poly for, you know, painter's drop cloths from Home Depot. Yeah. Build a big tent around this, airtight, and bomb the crap out of these bugs. With just a, uh, a couple uh, of bug bombs bug outside. Bombs. I, you know, I, I, it's not, you know, try it if you want to. I just don't know if that'll work. I don't know if it'll seep into the wood and kill the bugs. Well, if you could conceivably make the tent airtight. Yes. I mean, then, well, heck, then you probably don't even need the bug bomb because nothing can survive without oxygen, so. Right, so, yeah. Um, that's but, an, uh, actually, the, you, you say airtight and without surviving without oxygen. That's another solution that we know. I personally know someone who does this if he finds bug holes. Wrap them in plastic? No, thing. he just makes the piece of furniture and then he puts his film finish on. Right. And the film finish may, prevents air from getting into the wood, supposedly, and kills yeah, the bugs. makes sense. I've, I've heard that one before. I've found a couple of other choice ideas. All right, let's Just hear wanted them. to share these. Yes. Okay. I'm sure, I'm sure they're very <laughs> viable techniques. Number one, wrap it in plastic and include mothballs or just connect it to your car's exhaust. Yeah. That's a good one. Here's another one. Do you have fire ants there? They will clean up a log in no time. That's my favorite way. Um, I just, I, it's like, really? I'm not messing around with fire ants, man. You have fun with that. Yeah. I mean, but ultimately, the thing is, this stuff, if you, I would let it air dry, continue air drying outside. Boring. Uh, for a year or so. <laughs> it's not worth building with if you can't be certain yeah. that the bugs are dead. Yeah. I know it, it would hurt to lose the money on it. But it's just not worth it because you don't want 
because I'm not surprised that there's ash borers in there. That, that that's an epidemic right now. Mm-hmm. I'm a little surprised there's something in the cherry, but um, which would do the ash boring? I, I'm I'm not that. I mean, I know of them, but are they totally species specific? I believe so. So yeah. then he's got something else. Yes, it's not an ash borer. He's got some serious buggy problems. Yeah. You've got bugs, Louis. <laughs> take a bath. Actually, it's, I think it's Luis. Um, but anyhow, uh, yeah, man, take a bath, man. Um, anyhow, listen, next question comes in from Ron. All right. And Ron says, my mom, before she passed away, suffered a very common addiction. She couldn't stop making beautiful quilts. In her estate, there were something close to 60 quilts in storage. We'd love to preserve them to be passed on to future generations. I've done some initial research, and one of the prime requirements for this type of storage is a pH-neutral environment. Wood tends to have a high pH and may contain oils that will damage the fabric over time. I'd love to be able to build a chest or other box which does justice to the beauty of her work without damaging them. Any suggestions? You had... Well, I had one, and then you have, I think, which might be a better one, but my I'll go with mine first, because okay. I think yours is better. All right. I had thought... I do okay. too, by the way. <laughs> I thought, well, all right, what if you built a, um, if you were to build uh, like a cherry, you know, blanket chest? Sure. What if on the interior um, you had, uh, you applied some sort of like melamine on the interior that was basically, fl- it, was fl- it would be flush. You wouldn't be able to see it from the outside. It would just be on the interior. Now, I guess the problem with that, though, would be now you're essentially veneering one side and the other eh, side of the wood isn't, and you That's not, a, I don't think that's an issue. It's uh, not pretty. No. But it would be effective, I would imagine. And I think when you say melamine, what you really mean is a laminate countertop. Little, yeah, laminate. Yeah. Exactly. Because yeah. I would not put... I wouldn't build it out of melamine. Yeah, because yeah, I don't... Who knows what's in uh press board that yeah. you put that melamine <laughs> no, on. No, what I'm talking about is, a, is the laminate. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, I don't... I, again, you'd have to do some research into whether or not the laminate is pH neutral. I mean, my idea is to build your cabinet and then just finish it with secret. The deodorant <laughs> because i'm pretty uh, sure that's aerosol or uh, it's ph wipe on. that's ph balance oh, i know i'm just aerosol yeah. or uh, wipe on variety wipe on of course oh, okay. yeah, so yeah. Getting it. um no my idea was that uh i think there's what i would do is build your uh your chest however you want to but before you build it do a little googling i bet you can find some type of airtight plastic like Lexan or plexiglass. Lexan or something. Could it just be plastic uh, that's made to store quilts. Yeah. You buy them, and then you build your nice wooden blanket chest mm-hmm. around them, and those go inside it. Right. So then you've got if, – if you want to use the blanket chest as a conventional blanket chest down the line, you can just take out the liner that you've built out of plastic, yes. and you've still got your blanket chest intact. I think they can – I think you should be able to – Find one and buy one. You won't have to make it. No, but what I'm thinking is if he wants to make something really custom. Yes, you could make it. There one. are a lot of cool plastic suppliers. I remember when I lived in New York on Canal Street, there were all these awesome plastic suppliers, and you can get anything you want in a sheet, anything you can yes, imagine. Yes, yes. So I think you're onto something. But again, you would want to – I don't know what the pH levels of, say, Lexan right. or acrylic is. But you could look that up, like conser- conservation quality plastic or conservators, yeah. something or other. You know? And it's not – that hard to join this stuff. You can join it with super glue. Right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, well, we have a new segment on Shop Talk Live this week. We're dubbing Tool Bombs. All right, here's the deal. We've all done it, Matt. Yes. We've all, at one point or another, bought a total dud of a tool. A tool so bad, it deserves a special place in the oh. fireplace. Or just a tool you bought and you ended up never using. Okay, all right. Uh, like I said, I'm a man of action, a man of many words. <laughs> a man of hyperbole. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so this week for our segment debut, what do you got, Matt? What What's your got? tool bomb? Well, I, again, I would say it's not necessarily a bomb. It's a very fine tool. I just okay. don't, I just never use it. Okay, hold so, on. Let me get Phil Lowe on the line right now. <laughs> Make sure he's listening. Beep, 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 beep. Hello, Phil Lowe here. <laughs> Financial Workshop. Phil doesn't talk Audie like Keegan's that. here with yeah. me. Audie Keegan might talk like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what I would say is is the large router plane that I own, uh, which uh, I bought before I started working at the. I bought it was one of the first. They're tools cool tools, though. Fantastic tool. It works perfectly. Yeah. But I just never use it okay. because you know what are they used for? They're used to trim 
uh, dado bottoms. You could use them to trim uh, mortise or, or tenon cheeks. Well, you know, look, when it comes to dados, I'm either cutting it with a router bit yeah, or I'm not a dado set. With it. Yeah, I'm not. It doesn't need to be trimmed. Yeah. Um, so I got that going for me. Nice. Uh, so I never use it. I, I, did you? Uh, how many times have you actually used it? I've used it a fair amount, you know, uh, okay. but I still regret buying it. It's, it just sits in my tool cabinet. How much you spend on that? Oh, I don't remember. Come on. I don't know. Roundabout. No, because I, I I don't know. You spent a lot. No. Oh, like five hundred dollars. Oh, no, come I'm, on. I'm kidding. No, all right. It was it was. And you have two less than one fifty. What's the other one? Oh, you want me to give the other one too? Or should we wait? Well, no. Let's let's hold it on for a future segment. A future Just segment. One one a segment. Just one because this is sort of like the opposite of favorite tool of all time. True. It's. The, I like this. Yeah. I like this. The tool I bought that I just really shouldn't have bought. The router plane. The router plane. Yeah, you have some small router planes that you find useful. Right. Now, I don't – well, what I want is a small router plane. Oh, what, what I don't you, own okay. one yet, but I want one because there are times when I cut one-eighth-inch wide dados. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they're stop dados, and so the end of it's mm-hmm. round like the, because of the – It's uh, easier to trim that. So I want to trim yeah. that – the bottom of it up after I square it up. And my one eighth inch chisel fits the the dado too perfectly, so I can't really yeah. get in there and clean it up. So if I, but with a little rabbit <clears throat> uh, rabbit plane, a router plane rather, I can get a, sm- a bit that's less than an eighth of an inch wide and clean up the bottom where I've had to square it up. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, mine. I'm justifying the purchase of another tool is what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a whole set of like four uh, cheap. Um, F-style bar clamps that I got at the local hardware store. These are the kind that you get that have the the bar that's like, you know, 24 to 36 inches in length, and it's about uh, maybe just shy of three-quarters tall, the bar stock, and then it's maybe an eighth thick. It's like as thick as three pieces of aluminum foil. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And and what happens is if you try to glue something up with that and really apply a decent amount of, moderate amount of pressure with the, you know, at at or close to full extension of the clamp, um, it flexes like a banana, and it's the most useless, cheap clamp you will yeah. ever have. I've bought some like that before. I, when my when I first started woodworking, my dad told me, "I was like, oh, you should go get these clamps at Big Lots." <laughs> first of all, it's like, yeah, my okay. Anyway, okay, dad, <laughs> Big Lots, right? So I go and I buy some, and they were just junk. Yeah, absolute junk. I I. I I gave them to somebody. I can't remember who. I'm thinking of cutting the bar. Like. Oh. I'm thinking <laughs> of cutting the bar, you know, my bars in half and just using them as smaller clamps. Yeah, smaller clamps. That might work. You know? Yeah. Um, um, spend well, money on clamps. I think that's the lesson here. Yeah. Then there are some things you buy, like I bought this set of tapered countersink bits at mm-hmm. uh, a certain store that... Oh, a certain store where you can get really inexpensive woodworking Tools. stuff. Yeah. yeah. All sorts of random yes. stuff. They're down by the marina, I think. Down by the marina. Sometimes they store freight there <laughs> okay. uh, or near the, near the store. It was just – I was like I bought – when I was buying them, I knew this is not a good way to spend $10. This is stupid. They're going to be – and, of course, absolute junk. It's funny, though, because that place is – it can be very hit or miss. I've yes. gotten some good – Cheap stuff there. I've got some transfer punches there that are fantastic. Right. Stuff like, exactly. Stuff like that that you can't you know mess what? up. No moving parts. Exactly. No moving yeah. parts. You can't mess that but up. But I do have a fractional dial caliper from there, which is very nice. Hmm. Yep. Very nice. Interesting. Yeah. Well, there, there are some things that you can get at that store at down. that store down where the stevedores hang out. That's right. Down there by the longshoremen. <laughs> I know, longshore. Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, anyhow. Uh, where are we at? I've got more questions. I got one from Dave. Dave, how you doing? Uh, Dave? Yes. Oh, we don't have a phone. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Dave writes, I've been working on construction of a shop for a little over a year now, and I'm trying to decide what I should cover the walls with so I can start hanging some cabinets. Should I go with regular drywall or some other material? What do you guys suggest based on your experience having visited so many different shops? What did you do in your own shops? Here's a photo. Uh, so this is in, it's a shop in his basement. I'm assuming his house is built into a hill. He's got one wall of the basement that actually has a window in it. Um, he's got studs um, that have then been, uh, you know, insulation in between. Uh, and he's looking for what the heck to cover the walls with. I, it's easy. Go ahead. Trump it up, baby. Gold Italian marble. <laughs> is the classiest shop. <laughs> the classiest shop? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So... 
Go ahead. You know, okay. So my shop yeah. is, to answer that question first, right now is just concrete. Nice. Concrete blocks. Okay. I painted them white, though. Okay. I think the color white's important. It yeah. get, uh, makes the shop a lot brighter. But I plan to, uh, the next year or so, probably the next year, to uh, build in the walls a little bit with some sleeper studs and then put up horizontal 1x12s, just rough pine 1x12s, mm-hmm. and make that my walls. Um, just to give it a little more of the romantic woodworking like feel. But I was thinking about this. And so he has these studs. And dry, drywall is great because it's cheap. It's easy to deal with. You, you cover huge amounts of sp- space at one time. Yeah. Mudding drywall is not so great. But you can paint it, right? right? So it's nice. The downside of drywall is that you can't screw anything into it. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't hold anything. you got to use anchors and all this stuff. And he yeah. wants to hang cabinets. So I started to think about ways that he could uh, – what what he could do – uh, to be able to hang cabinets and still use drywall. So one idea I had was you're not going to hang anything four feet or lower. So what you could do was run drywall all the way around four feet and under. Mm-hmm. That that means just turning that drywall over on its side, running drywall. You could put like a chair rail or something up, and then you could put – Well, that's how you always hang drywall anyway. On its long side. Yes, that's true because it makes it easier to get to, yeah. the, to the seams. You only do it the other way if you're an idiot woodworker who's re... <laughs> who's, who's, uh, Is that a confession? Yes. <laughs> I did it the other way before. Um, uh, you could then cover the top portion of the wall with T, what, T111? Is T-111, that what it's called? Yeah. Yes. It uh, comes back from the future. It's plywood. Oh, I thought you were talking about the term. Oh, sorry. <laughs> right, yes. Uh you could cover it with just plain plywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could cover it. This is what I might tend to do with uh, like one by eights or one by tens or one by twelves. And you, if you go to a sawmill, you'll get that stuff really cheap. And then you have you can drill directly into that stuff. Right. You can just anchor right into it. If you wanted to do all drywall, mm-hmm. what I would do is after you know when you hang it, mark where your studs are so you know where the studs are. <clears throat> then when you want to hang up your wall cabinets. Put up French cleats and hang them on French cleats. There you go. Yeah. Or uh, I was thinking uh, if he does uh, three walls with drywall and nice bright white paint and maybe he has some cleats on one of those walls or something for his cabinets and then have one wall that's just all T111 so that he can just screw the heck out of all sorts of tool hangers and things to it because we have that in the in the bench room here. Yes. And it's very useful because you can yes. just screw wherever you want all to. sorts of things all over it. Yeah. Um, it's the, and it's the, anybody who's been reading the magazine a long time has probably seen this wall a million times on the cover of the magazine. Or in the, um, in the magazine. Or in somewhere. the magazine, yeah. 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 Um, so I, a couple options there. Hopefully one of them is useful. Um, right. Or, and one of my walls is a stone, a stone wall. You know, I, yeah, the dungeon. That's right. Um, Next actually, to my joiner. I like videotaping against that wall because it's kind of, it's kind of cool looking. Um, I, I'm, I'm having the same issue in my shop, which is in my basement. And it used to, there used to be a shop down there, um, but it was probably built in the 70s. So like half the walls are covered in this ugly Shack carpet. That's no, it's like <laughs> ugly wood paneling, um, which I'm going to put quarter inch drywall over, yeah. and then just paint bright white. And then the other, there's a whole long wall that has built-in shelving, which is sweet, and tons of drawers already built in. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all painted like this light coffee color. That's just drab and doesn't reflect any light. Yeah, so I'm going to paint all that like gloss white. I just yep. want everything white, 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 you know, because I need as much light down there as I can get. Yeah. Um, it made a huge difference in my shop when I painted the walls and the ceiling white. Yep. It made a huge difference. It made an even bigger difference when I put in all those uh, fluorescent lights. Well, that's that's <laughs> the other thing that I'm doing in my shop is I've got – the lighting is – is uh, it's just crappy. It's got these like recessed – um, fixtures for just conventional uh, light bulbs, incandescent light bulbs. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is I have a very – and I was thinking, well, I'll, I'll add on some of those flush mount, uh, you know, some of those uh, fluorescent fixtures. Um, but the problem is that my ceiling is so low that, you know, that the two inches that that fluorescent fixture is going to hang, hang down, down. You know, it's, it's going to make a difference. So I think I'm going to keep the crappy ones in the center that are recessed and just put a high wattage bulb in. And then I'm going to replace the ones along the sides – and you know the fixtures that are near the walls yes. with banks of fluorescence that kind of bounce off the corner yeah. where the wall intersects with the ceiling and see if that see if that works but you need light man you do um most important thing in the shop 
Anyhow, uh, next question comes uh, from Randy, and uh, Randy has a question concerning the need for a micro-bevel when sharpening plane irons. Uh, he recently acquired a block plane and used his WorkSharp 3000 horizontal sharpening wheel system to dial in his primary bevel at 25 degrees. Then, he used his 4000-8000 grit combination waterstone to apply an additional micro-bevel, and here's his question. Look, I can easily and quickly get equal results on a main bevel at either 25 or 30 degrees. Other than the ease of honing reason you've already given, what's the value of a micro-bevel? Other sources and classes I've, I've taken with experienced sharpeners indicate that the micro-bevel doesn't improve the quality or performance of the blade. If the WorkSharp does the main bevel quickly and with the same results, why bother with the micro? It's a deal. You're wasting my time. I'm wasting my time. <laughs> uh, yeah, do that if you want to. Okay, moving on. Next question. <laughs> I yeah, I mean it's right. The 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 micro bevel, the secondary bevel, is really there to uh, speed up sharpening. It means you don't have to rehone as much. Uh, re I'm sorry, regrind, and it means you're honing a smaller section of the bevel. So uh, it's, you can remove that material more quickly. Yeah, and, and you get a polished edge much faster yeah. because you're, you're working on a smaller area. So even though you have a primary bevel, you're still going to have to polish that bevel uh, initially. And uh, once you get it polished, it should be okay. And then you just have to go back and uh, use your probably just your, your four and your 8,000 grit stones in between sharpening. You know, all I can say, I can say you're right. It's just a matter of speed. If you find that uh, you can do this uh, with the – combination of the workshop work sharp and the uh in your water stones that's fine do that so you know so you're not doing anything wrong it, no. if it works it works great and yeah. and, and, and the, yeah but, um but do this though pick one method of sharpening and stick with it and stick with it and learn how to sharpen that way and just stay with it and it sounds like he found his way sounds like it yeah one that thing don't like do i would not do because we have one of these gizmos in the shop mm -hmm. here i would not uh do a micro bevel on this thing because I've found that the steel gets hot pretty quick and you, hmm. you'd be more likely to burn uh, the tip of the, or the cutting edge if you were doing a micro bevel on one. Okay. Uh, moving on to uh, our, I think, wow, we're moving on to the end of our show. The last question is from Jed. Well, without Mike here to disrupt us. I know. Or Asa. Jeez. What? Sorry. Sorry. I just <laughs> Bit of truth there, maybe. Nah, <laughs> 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 I'm po poking, uh, poking poor Asa in his absence. Yeah. Um, all right, Jed wrote, "Hello, I just discovered the podcasts. I'm currently listening to the old programs, and you guys asked for people to write in with design questions. You had once talked about how to proportion rails and styles of the do of a door, um, you know, in proportion to one another. However, you didn't talk about how to proportion the rails and styles with respect to the total size of the door. And I'm wondering if there's any guidance you could give me on that. So what's the deal with rail and style sizes in proportion to a total door size? Well, you I, think here? Uh, I would say if we're just talking about a, a sort of a standard size cabinet, nothing too small, nothing too big. So sort of the Goldilocks of area. What the area. hell does that mean? I don't, it sounds like I'm saying something, but I'm really saying nothing. Uh, <laughs> I would say, you know, nothing really small and delicate. Uh, let's exclude that for now. Mm -hmm. And let's exclude anything really big. Okay. All right. Uh, let's just talk about like a normal wall cabinet. All right. Okay. Or like a, you know, the door for a uh, sideboard or something like sure. that. Uh, I would say that the rails and style should be somewhere between. An inch and a half, inch and three quarters, and two and a half inches. And uh, that the size, the width that I would use would depend upon, ultimately upon how big the cabinet was. So for things that are sort of on the smaller side of a normal cabinet, I would use one and a half to one and three quarters, probably one and three quarters. And then I would go bigger for something that was larger. Uh, what you can do is cut out when – you, when you're milling up your rail and style material – uh, you can make sample pieces that are various widths as you go as you're doing it, and then just hold them up to the cabinet and see how they, yeah. how they work with that. Um, one thing you do have to be careful about though is the width of your tenon. The narrower the the rail, then the narrower the 
tenon width will be, the narrower the tenon will be, because when you cut that groove for the door for the panel, mm-hmm. that groove is going to be maybe a quarter inch to a half inch deep. Right there, you're, if you have a two and a half inch wide rail, your tenon automatically becomes two and a quarter or two inches wide. Mm-hmm. But then you're going to have a shoulder on the top. And that shoulder is going to be a quarter to a half inch. Mm-hmm. So you're taking off another quarter to a half inch. So you might end up, if you go too narrow on your rails and styles, you'll end up with a very narrow uh, tenon, which then you might start to compromise the joint strength. Fair enough. Now, if Mike Rayhari would say you're completely full of it, Matt, <laughs> here's what you should be doing. But that's so I think the that range for most work won't work for most cabinets. Around one and a half to one and three quarters at the narrowest to two and a half at the widest. Okay. Um, well, as you all know, we get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store, and every week we like to read a few, so here it goes. For this week, Double Down wrote, The Best Woodworking Podcast. I listen to all of the woodworking podcasts, and this is by far my favorite. Keep up the good work. In the Dog House, H-A-U-S, wrote, You guys rock, and I hope you keep it up. Ignore the naysayers and have fun on the air. We're having fun listening to you. It's radio, after all, not video. And from Krista A., I really enjoy listening to you guys while I'm at work. Really helps me get through the day while I'm doing some of the more mundane tasks of a young architect in a big office. Keep it up. So, no, we did not get any um, any tough, overly critical comments this week. We've gotten a few, though. A few. In the past couple weeks, and I always read them. Yes. I take people seriously. It's mostly because you're not funny, Ed. Well, I never said I was. <laughs> um, but anyhow, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on February 7th for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. I would let it air dry, continue air drying outside. Boring. Uh, for a year or so. <laughs>